You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is the author of The Grandmother's Club and The Light Possessed, three collections of short stories, a memoir titled Fall Out of Heaven, and a collection of essays listening to the page Adventures in Reading and Writing. He serves as the book commentator for NPR's All Things Considered and as a member of the writing faculty at Georgia Mason University. His new book is To Catch the Lightning. Thank you for joining me, Alan. My pleasure to be here, Rick. Alan, this book is about Edward Curtis, so I, I, I'd like you to tell me the first time you became aware of who he was and what he did. It's one of those uh, encounters that you, you, know, you just remember, but you're not sure why you remembered it. Uh, I was 18 years old. I was visiting some friends in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, wandered into the lobby of the Brattles Street movie house, and uh, which was an art house there. And they had a Curtis exhibit on the walls, and I just fell in love with those photographs. I, I, would, I didn't know who he was at the time. Uh, I just knew that I was looking at a world that I wanted to see more of. Well, how did you find out who he was and investigate who, what he did? Well, uh, let me explain my obsession, said the madman. Uh, I focused on these novels uh, with ex- well, I, I wrote a novel based on the life of an American woman painter, mainly George O'Keefe, but a lot of other biographies mixed in there. And then I d- and my first novel was about John Reed, explicitly about John Reed and Louise Bryant, uh, you know, the the uh, journalist who became enamored of the Russian Revolution. And uh, so this uh, Curtis obsession I see now with hindsight, you know, obviously I didn't seat at the time is is a is I guess part of a triptych of uh, homages to Americans uh, of various stripes, but all of them artists in a certain way. On my behalf, John Reed, George O'Keefe, and now Curtis. I see that clearly now. Why I've done these three novels, I see less clearly. But um, if I were to look at it objectively, I would say that having been born American to a Russian immigrant father and a mother who was first-generation American herself, whose parents came from Eastern Europe. In a way, my, the obsession seems to be with uh, somehow marking my Americanness or making a tie with the American past that, that seems important to me. Of course, Gore Vidal doesn't have to do this, right? Uh, <laughs> no, no wasp writer in America has to do this. They were too busy killing Indians to worry about uh, their ties to the land. But uh, in you know we're we're in this so-called multicultural phase now, where you know every hyphenated uh, American in the world is making novels. So I come a little earlier than that, but I see myself in that same light, trying to figure out not just who I am, but why I am where I am and and what that means. You've been working on this novel for a long time, and I'd like you to tell me um, when you started, what year you started it, and when you decided to move from 
being interested in the work of this man to deciding to do a portrait of this man who himself did portraits? Well, you know, these aesthetic decisions uh, are not like ordinary decisions. You don't say, okay, I'm, I need a new car. Uh, you wake up one morning and you're nauseated and you don't know what's wrong and then you realize you're supposed to be writing another novel. Uh, and, you know, I honestly can't say that I recall when the, 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 the kernel of this novel, you know, the little seed of this novel began to germinate. Obviously, from the moment I saw the Curtis photographs, it was planted in my mind. I had finished that O'Keefe novel, and I had done a book of stories, book of essays, and uh, woke up nauseated, realized I needed a fix, a novel fix. And it just came to mind that, okay, I'll write about Curtis. And I had the same experience that I had when I decided I was going to write about John Reed, you know, which is fools rush in where angels fear to tread. There are some perfectly competent historians who had been over that ground before. But with Curtis, oddly enough, not so much as either with Reed or O'Keefe. I mean, there were some really good biographies of O'Keefe, uh, Roxana Robinson's primarily, that I admire enormously, and uh, Robert Rosenstone's biography of, uh, of John Reed, which was there in my face. The, the biographical attention to Curtis was at a much lower level. There were monographs, there were you know, texts were, uh, catalog raisonné texts, but no, no full-fledged biography until around 1994. I think a woman named Laurie Lawler wrote one, um, which I chose not to read and because I was already immersed in my research. And uh, so you asked about when, when I started this. I would, I would say the actual writing nine years ago with the research maybe... 10, 12 years ago. So, uh, or maybe even earlier. I wish I could remember the day. I remember sitting in the, in, the, in, the, in the stacks of the Library of Congress surrounded by all the volumes of, the, of Curtis's uh, photographs and, and uh, ethno ethnographic notes. Uh, the, the, the great series that uh, uh, he got funded by, you know, a New York millionaire, and uh, I couldn't. I, I have a very vivid memory of working there for weeks and weeks and weeks in the Library of Congress, but I can't remember what year that was. Maybe it was next year. <laughs> Had you, at that time, decided you were going to write about him, or were you still just curious about the man himself? Oh no, I was making copious notes at that time. Tell us a little bit about what was out there, you said there weren't very many bi biographies out there. What was out there for you to understand who this was and, and what was your sense before you started the, the heavy-duty research? Give us an idea of what your sense of the man was and what he'd done. I had knew nothing about the man. All I, all I knew was the work. And so I, wanted, I, mean, I was terribly curious as to who made those photographs and why because... Uh, you know, once you start working your way through those volumes, you realize that he gave his life for this project. Uh, tell us, uh, tell us about the photographs, the volumes. What are they? And there, there are twenty volumes of these photographs. Mm -hmm. Who, who are they of? Every Western tribe that uh, he could agree have uh, get an agreement with to 
to photograph. So, um, I, you know, I guess you're, uh, I'm not an expert in ethno ethnography, but I, th I believe there, there are many more Western tribes than he photographed, but you can, some of them are offshoots of the main tribes. Other tribes had, have uh, since died out, but uh, he got the main, main uh, group that still pretty much still exists to this day. Their descendants still exist. When you started your research and made your decision to, to start writing this book, did you know you wanted to do a, a novel as opposed mm -hmm. to a biography? Yeah. And, and why didn't you want to write a biography when there were not that many out there available well, I'm for I'm not you? a biographer. Uh, you know, <laughs> actually, I would love to do, if I had the right subject, I'd love to do a nice little literary biography. Um, not even a pure literary biography, but you know, a biography that would focus on some writer and some aspect of their work. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not a biographer. I mean, you know, if you look back at what I've done, I've written novels and story collections and, and essays, one memoir before memoir was cool, and uh, I just had very little interest in writing this as a, as a biography. I, I should say no interest in writing it as a biography because... What you can't do in a biography is invent where you, you know, there are, or there are empty spaces. Invent the connection between the, the person and his work. That is, the person, the imaginative life of the person and his, his work or her work. Uh, I mean, you can't change things, but, you know, there are always a lot of gaps. And you can make things work in a way that if a biographer does, he ends up like that, uh, you know, that Reagan's last biographer who uh, imagined what Reagan might have thought if Reagan had a brain or, <laughs> you know, Joe, uh, uh, or, or uh, you know, a friend of mine who wrote a, a biography of Kennedy who, you know, blatantly put thoughts in the mind of, of Ted Kennedy uh, without consulting Kennedy. In fact, he tried to consult Kennedy, but Kennedy wouldn't speak to him. So he, he just made the stuff up, uh, you know. And if you're going to make stuff up, you might as well face it full on that you're writing fiction rather than fudge it and say you're writing an inventive biography. <laughs> and could you talk about? There's a lot of primary sources uh, for Edward Curtis. I mean, it's not just his photographs he wrote and, and he had over 10,000 wax cylinder yeah. recordings of these languages did you listen to some of those yes they, they're in the uh, library of traditional music at the University of Indiana uh, wow and they're very very fragile and uh, have they been converted to no. a digital format uh, no most of them no because they're too fragile to uh, to rework to, to, to work with so, um, I mean, that's virgin territory for some musicologist, but uh, they're, they're there. Uh, and he made these cylinders over the course of 30 years, and he took copious notes. Uh, his assistant for most of that time, a man named William Myers, did a lot of the actual drafting of the paragraphs and chapters on these, on these tribes. Um, he was tremendously helpful, and he had a, a, a native ability, as it were, to uh, work with uh, Indian languages. 
he was a, a classicist from a Northwestern, and he trained as a classicist Northwestern who emigrated to, to Seattle, and that's where he met Curtis. All of this is in the novel, and uh, in fact, Myers is my main uh, narrator. Um, but so he his uh, in, in instinctual ability to learn these languages very quickly allowed him to do a lot of the the deep ethnographic research. Uh, where while Curtis was setting people up for the fo for the shots and and you know listening and hearing about wonderful things that he wanted Myers to translate. One of the things uh, about this novel that's just so beautiful and so well done is the series of reflections. It's mirrors aimed at mirrors aimed at mirrors. There's It's a portrait of a portrait photographer mm -hmm. by, by the man who, and you're writing the portrait of the man who did the portrait. Mm -hmm. and could you talk about inhabiting a book at these different levels of portraiture, uh, of getting into these people's minds, going from one to the next to the next? Well, uh, I had already said, invoke fools rushing in. Um, <laughs> you know, you do what you believe you need to do and pray that you have enough technique to accomplish it. Uh, and I can't say, maybe there are writers who think things through very rationally and then proceed, but I just sort of throw myself into it and try to do what, you know, what my instincts tell me I should do. Uh, and then I say, hope, hope the technique is there for me to do it. it requires a lot of revision. <laughs> I, I imagine. One thing that uh, the structure of this book, there, there are so many uh, interesting structural flourishes and, and uh, side stories, uh, Scheherazade-like mm. uh, feel to it. Um, did you look at, at Scheherazade, and, and how did you put these things together sequentially, or did you just write a bunch of stuff and then start shuffling the pages? Hmm. Um, you want a, a peek behind the curtain, do you? Yeah, yeah. We want to. <laughs> we want to know all the gory details. Well, Senator, I have no recollection. Uh, <laughs> well, you have a full head of hair, so I'm guessing that it wasn't quite as hard as it might seems it might have been. No, but look, in, you know, beyond the hair. And it's getting whiter and whiter by the day. I, I, again, you know, you follow leads, doors open, uh, you find a trail, and you, and you follow it to the end and hope it leads somewhere else. You know, if you write a novel the way I write it, you know, you, you have draft after draft, and you discard draft after draft, and you try to get some advice from readers whom you trust. I mean, and there were... Uh, one uh, great reader, my wife, and uh, and I uh, happened to have it read by a, a bookstore owner in uh, whom I, of whom I have a slight acquaintance, uh, and she read it and she made a major suggestion, which I took her up on, uh, and then I had a, a great editor at, at Source Books, a woman named Shana Dreyes, and. Uh, she did help me with some fine-tuning. But I would say without my wife's suggestions and without this bookstore owner's suggestions that uh, I'd still be working at it. You know, I, I teach writing to, to graduate students at George Mason, and uh, the way I see myself is that, you know, I impart a couple of techniques and tips that help them to move along a little bit faster in their work. 
Um, and that's what you know the few good readers that I have do for me. They help me to you know save some time. I'm I'm the I'm the you know the twelve monkeys sitting at the typewriters and trying to write Shakespeare. And <laughs> somebody will say, "Use the A key." And then I thought, ah. <laughs> Writing a, a, a novel like this over such an extended period of time. Well, I wrote a couple of other books. I mean, I completed a couple of other books in the in the interim. Well, that that's what interests me. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, how did you uh, keep hold of, of what you had, you know, in your mind and bring it back each time? Did you have to go back and reread everything you've done every time you put it down? And I mean, it seems to me that when you're writing a novel like this, that you're spending as much time reading yourself and rereading yourself, probably more than writing. Actually, yes, but it doesn't seem that way. You know, Hemingway's old method was, when, which works with writing a story. You know, you read what you wrote yesterday, and then you start adding to it. And if that's a novel, that means you know, within you know, two hundred yesterdays, you've got quite a lot of. Uh, reading to do before you start working every day. So, But after a while, that begins to accrue in your mind as something more than memory and less than reality so that uh, you have a deep sense by the time you're in a second or third draft of, of you know, the, who the people are you're writing about and where they live and what they're doing. So, uh, you know, in terms of craft, uh, you're kind of like a coral reef, right? You just sort of acquire, accrue layer after layer. Uh, I wonder if that metaphor works. There's so many marine biologists here. <laughs> I, it works for me. I, I, <laughs> I really understand. But, but the other part of it is, and this is the, the, the other part of it is, you know, it, there is no obsession like an obsession to write a novel. And as anyone with an obsession knows, and everyone has obsessions to one degree or another, you don't forget them easily. Um, you know, you wake up in the morning and, and you look to see if that uh, mole on your arm is still growing or, you know, you have to call your bookie or, you, you know, <laughs> you, 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 you wonder if uh, a political candidate has, has said yet another brilliant thing or yet another stupid thing. I mean, you know, you, you don't forget these things. So, and and a, no, a novel is... When you're working on a novel, it is the great obsession. I don't, I don't even think that uh, f- you know, falling in love with uh, the wrong person and ruining, say, eight or ten years of your life is as grand an obsession as writing a novel. Maybe, maybe, maybe we could say, pl- play with that a little. Writing a novel over the course of a number of years, say two to five or seven or nine years, is like falling in love with the right person but never getting your part right <laughs> for years and years. Your main character, w- William Myers, he's something of an image of you. He's a wordsmith painting a portrait in words in this novel of, of Edward Curtis. And I'm wondering if you could talk about inhabiting the mind of somebody who lived about, you know, 90 years before you lived and getting their thoughts, their thoughts in the language, their internal language mm-hmm. to themselves mm-hmm. to match what you'd expect somebody of that time because yes. you do a really wonderful job of that. Well, thank you, Rick. Uh, you know, talking about obsessions, there's one word that Myers used, and it comes at the um, 
opening of the uh, there's there's a prologue and then there's chapter one, and he decides in the prologue that he's going to be uh, he's going to play Homer to Curtis's Odysseus in a certain way, and he says, "So sing in me, O muse, if you're still listening to please such as mine." And I went back and forth, you know, for months and months about that word. So, because Myers is a modern man, and, you know, you know that because of his language. And so he wouldn't say, therefore, sing in me, O muse. But then I'd wake up the next morning, i think, well, but wouldn't he say, therefore? And then I'd wake up the next morning and say, well, no, he would say, so, sing in me, O muse. I mean, that's, and this, the point being that, the way you get the characters is by means of their language. And uh, he's, you know, both of, both Curtis and Myers are modern uh, English speakers. Uh, so, with, you know, they speak the same English that we speak with certain small modifications. Uh, so that's the way you begin to inhabit the character is by listening to what they say in your mind and looking at it when you write it down on the page. Um, I just don't think that, you know, well, if Myers had stayed in, in academia, if he, if he remained a classicist uh, instead of uh, leaving Northwestern and then going to Seattle working as a newspaper reporter, chasing fires and, and stuff like that. So he's enough of a slangy guy and enough of a modern guy and, and not, n- not a pedant. So I think he's the guy who would say, so sing in me. Not therefore sing in me, <laughs> but these are the talk about obsessions. These are the kinds of things that you do go back and forth about. Uh, I'd like to think that people who build, you know, airplanes have the same kind of obsession with getting the hydraulic system right, or you know, bri- bridge builders worry about a certain rivet, and they go back to that rivet again and again, making sure that it's in there tight enough to hold up that beam that's going to hold up the bridge. You were writing a historical novel, and you want it to be uh, accurate. And yet you're mm-hmm. writing a novel, and you want it to be a novel. Yeah. Um, tell me about how you traverse that tra- terrain. Well, you know, you you read as much about the period as you can, and you read people who write in the period, and you look at photographs, and and if there's some, in this case, there's some silent film, you can look at film and you listen to what voices you can get from that period. So it's mostly reading, and you just try to get that setting, that period right, without calling too much attention to it. Because, you know, 2008 is real to us without us thinking much about the fact that it's going to be someone else's past in 10 years or 20 years or 40 years or you know, next year. So the, you know, historical figures in fiction have to be easy in their time. They they can't walk around thinking, well, I'm living in the year 700, and therefore I will drink mead. <laughs> <laughs> they just drink mead. Um, so, you know, you have to get that right balance between research and, and the, uh, the sense of being human and comfortable in, in the time in which you live. And, and let's talk about research. You had the man's photographs to look at, 
uh, wax some wax cylinders to listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked on uh, he produced one movie and worked on another. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about did you did you yourself create for yourself somewhere out there? Is is there a, your scratch biography or timeline? Of, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I've got a lot of those. Uh, of okay. and I go back to it again and again and again and again and. Um, you know, it's when you're when you're inventing as much as you invent in a novel about real people who lived in a real time. You have to be very careful uh, that what you invent fits into those timelines. Uh, and uh, if I had a metaphor, you know, that made help make the sense, I would employ it here, but I don't. So you you don't want to do or say anything that's that's inaccurate, given. The, the timeline and given the details of, of the the years in which these people would live. At the same time, you know, we don't live our lives by timelines, right? We live our lives, you know, based on other energies. So you want to give a sense of the reality of people in their minds, using their minds and their bodies and who lived at a, a certain time and place. But uh, you don't, again, you don't want to call too much attention to it because we don't call that much attention to it in our own lives. So you'd be breaching the reader's sense of reality if you, if, if you became too self-conscious about it. So therefore, you, you know, you're bound to make errors. And uh, in the case of Myers, uh, well, I've got a narrator who has an imperfect memory. So if, he, if there's some errors of fact about his story of Curtis, why, obviously, they're his. He's human, isn't he? Uh, that's very a helpful <laughs> aspect of all of all biography or uh, historical novels. They're all based on humans, and humans are indeed frail, and their memories are right. But if you just have a straightforward third-person narration, mm-hmm. then the blame goes to the to the writer. I've got a screen between me. <laughs> you got yeah, somebody to to pick up the blame. Uh, you wrote about Curtis and you, you, you told about his life, but you didn't start with he was born and end right. with he died. Talk about how you chose, what points in his life you chose to talk about and, and how, you, how you developed your narrative from that. Well, I will tell you this piece of craft, uh, I mean, I wrote all of that. I just didn't put it in. Oh. So... <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's that's kind of scary almost. <laughs> that's a lot of work. Well, you know, I just I'm I, I'm not a genius, I guess. You know, I always think poets are thoroughbreds and novelists are mules. You know, um, I just had to plod along from point A to point B to point C to point D before I understood that I did that I could fold in some of the material from his early early part of his life, but not put it on the page. He he was a really fascinating person. I just wanted to kind of uh, touch uh, on on who he was. He he was um, his father was a reverend, a, a Civil War veteran. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he started a little congregation, founded a church when he came back from the war and, and in the Middle West. It, Curtis himself built a camera at the age of six. It's kind of mind-boggling. Well, he had a book. You know, he had a, he had a little instruction book, and it actually began before that. When his father gave him a, a stereopticon, that's when he became fascinated with uh, images, and images in more than one dimension, actually. Your book starts when, when he meets Myers, mm-hmm. and, and he's married to Clara. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Clara is an important figure in his life, and, and 
as much of a hero as as he clearly is, a truly um, American style hero mm-hmm. in the in the fullest sense. He he didn't lead a perfect life, and that he had a lot of problems, didn't he? Yeah. Well, you can't um, you can't uh, be put yourself at the service of this astonishing vision quest to photograph all of the living uh, Indian tribes in the American West and and be home all the time. Uh, <laughs> and it tortured him. You know, he went back and forth uh, between his vision and his desire to make a whole family and of course it tortured his wife because she was left to to raise the family a good part of each year she made something of that in that she became a businesswoman and ran his photography business while he was away uh, so she became uh, a modern woman in that regard but that didn't satisfy her uh, I, it wouldn't have satisfied me I mean, here's the person she had dedicated her life to, and he was away most of the time, traveling around, you know, on horseback and then later in automobiles uh, with a couple of guys who were his his staff and uh, spending most of his time with the Indians. So this is a, a, a very difficult way to raise a family. So he's torn between his particular family and uh, and this great Indian family that he became part of. One of the things this book is, is a really uh, beautiful look at the the last vestiges uh, of, you know, a wild America, of, a, of an America that wasn't completely tamed. Mm-hmm. A- and we live in an America where you can pretty much get in a car and drive to any corner of mm-hmm. dirt in the entire mm-hmm. nation. Right. And I wonder if you could talk about creating a sense of an America that's not that. Well, um, I mean, I tried to do that in that in the, in the sequence with his when his first field trip when he went down to the to the bottom of the Grand Canyon on you know on mules, and uh, I mean it took a while, and people do that now and it's part of a vacation, but they choose to do it if you have no choice, uh, as you suggested, uh, you know it becomes a chore. But he, you know, he spent a large part of his time traveling to places where very few people from the outside world had traveled, and uh, giving himself over to life in those locations, which uh, wasn't always pleasant. And uh, in the middle part of his his uh, his work, when his son Hal was old enough, he'd bring Hal with him, uh, and imagine what it was like for this uh, young boy to travel with his father, often on, on, on horseback or on mules, uh, sometimes later, later in automobiles, to these places that took them days and days to reach where these Indians were camped and living their lives as they'd lived them for thousands of years. I mean, it opened this boy's eyes on a world he never could have even imagined, let alone seen part of if it hadn't been for Curtis. That's why for the most of his children were utterly devoted to him and loved him desperately, missed him desperately. And and on his deathbed, Hal, the boy, turned, you know, fifty some year old man, said, He was the best man I knew. What what father could ask for something more than that? You talk about this, that he was a a modern man. 
I mean, he, mm-hmm. he was lived until one. 1952. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, he was there to see the first nukes and the first freeways and mm-hmm. you know the beginnings of our culture, and we mm-hmm. by, it was pretty well underway by then. Yet he had this experience of again. Uh, an utterly primitive America mm-hmm. uh, and a deep and intense experience of that primitive America and he imprinted it on film and it must have imprinted him and I wanted you to talk about creating in, in this book you create that kind of schism could you talk about how you yourself experienced that well you know it's um, I think it's something that we're very very distant from these kinds of origins, and at the same time, every night we go to sleep and dream, and we're very close to it. This is the, a wild and woolly world in which we have very little control, in which all sorts of scenarios are being played out, to which we feel deeply connected but seem to have no understanding of. <laughs> um, and I think that may be the model of what it was what it was like to live in in this you know so-called primitive world. But on the other hand. Um, he, what he discovered, you know, as as an amateur ethnographer who uh, caused a number of debates in in the world of academic ethnography, uh, a large uh, number of people at first in in the, the world of universities were attacking him because he was an amateur, and then some serious and respected ethnographers came around to have tremendous admiration for his work. In any case. He was trained. He, he trained himself to study these worlds and uh, and learn what, after years and years of study, a good ethnographer learns, which is that, as in our world, in the in their world, in the world of of you know the Indians going back to prehistory, they had a sense and a system which made it clear that everything was connected. So. Uh, there's both chaos and certainty that work at the same time, which is what reality is for us every day. Uh, and so I guess I tried to, to somehow give the flavor of that. Your books, y- you mentioned that this is kind of the, the third part of a, of a triptych. Mm-hmm. A- and you're a writer. You're a writer. You're a reader. You're a word guy. Mm-hmm. But you're obsessed with light, yeah. and images. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> maybe because I grew up in darkest <laughs> in darkest New Jersey. <laughs> uh, beyond that, could could you talk about uh, it, the hardest thing, obviously, to do is to convey the the what light is and what we see in in the, the visual world. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's in many ways easier to talk about something that we can't even really hardly define our interior emotional world in mm-hmm. words works pretty goes seem to go pretty naturally in words you picked the hardest challenge you could for yourself well i didn't pick it it picked me i mean it just i mean now that you mention it you know it's just what i have to do when i'm working with these with this material do you at, when you it is it's what you have to do could you have you developed as a as a writer have you developed habits or or um, rules or guide sets or slots that you run your writing through to, to in order to be able to process I mean the the visual stuff that you write oh no you're making it much too possibly much too systematic <laughs> no no 
No. It's, uh, to quote Thomas Jefferson, you know, I, I employ a certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did, when you were doing the, the, the research, how, what material for you played the most important part? What spoke to you the most and do you feel that provided the most of the, I get inspiration, the input for what you wrote? Mm -hmm. Well, two, two things. Um, the, the photographs themselves, that was the main thing. And, and the locations, the settings where you know, the man lived his life. Um, you travel to those places mm -hmm. then? So you get you feel your way into what it must have been like when he was there, um, but without the photographs, he wouldn't have been who he was, who he is, and so that it's mainly the photographs. And those you can you don't have to travel anywhere to get them. Just you know you go to your nearest big library. In, this, in the case of my town, it's a place called the Library of Congress, and uh, you just live there for a while and look at all the photographs. He he, noted for his photographs, of course, but could he also made movies? He even worked on on the Ten Commandments. Yes, he worked on the <laughs> silent uh, version of the Ten Commandments. Um, he had um, somebody recommended him to the DeMille crew, and he got a job. Uh, he was signed to do the still photographs for it, and then they needed a cameraman, so he he filled in. And so he was there for the filming of the, the crossing of the Red Sea, which they did in a beach in Oregon. <laughs> oh, illusion! I'm sorry to dispel. <laughs> um, and um, and then he worked on a couple of other DeMille films, um, you know, a couple of westerns, a, a Gary Cooper western. And well, then he stopped working, went to live with his daughter, his oldest daughter and her husband on a farm outside uh, L.A. and became obsessed with uh, gold. That became his new obsession. As you're writing this uh, book, you have some sense of what you're doing. I mean, you're writing a novel about a man. But I, I, I'm guessing that you don't think about what the final result is going to be. <laughs> And so, but you're working on really classic American themes of the classic American hero, and this is a very, very much uh, an American novel. Were there other books that floated through your mind when you were writing this book that that maybe informed it in some way? Well, you can't write a novel like this without thinking of Moby Dick <laughs> and Ahab's madness and your own madness. Um, it seems to me that, you know, that's the book that comes to mind. And, and some Huckleberry Finn uh, thrown in for delight. Um, I guess I'd say those are the two main beasts that lurk uh, beyond the edge of the, you know, at the edge of the clearing for me. His, uh... Now, that's, I mean, that sounds really pretentious. Yeah, well, he thought about Moby Dick in relation to his own novel, but, I mean, you know, that's how you... You get whatever good you make, you get it by thinking as big as you can. I mean, I mean, I have tremendous respect for my and, and admiration for my contemporaries, but um, 
Um, you know, I don't want to write novels like theirs. I want to write novels like, you know, the big books from the old days, same, which is the same thing they do. It, this book really does, I think, fall into a, a certain genre of book, it's a, which I, the great American novel. And, wow. and, and I think what's interesting to me about books that fall into that genre is that it's not something you can write deliberately. Mm-hmm. Or if you do write, set out to write that deliberately, mm-hmm. you might as well just figure the years spent doing so are wasted. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I mean, I just think you have to, um, you know, pull a Babe Ruth and point to the fence and hope you can do it. Otherwise, I mean, who wants to write the small American novel? I mean, <laughs> I, you know, who? I, I'm, what, what's his name? Um, who wrote the mezzanine? Nicholson Baker. Maybe he aspires to write the small American or the ungrade American novel. But it seems to me most of the writers I know want to go flat out, as our dear late friend John Gardner used to say. Could I, as a um, a writer, when you're when you're working on this? sort of material, it, one thing that I, I think that uh, must interest you is uh, some of the, the, the bigger themes. I mean, you're writing a historical novel, and, and it's all about that history. Mm-hmm. But the people who lived in that history I mean, aren't going to have a chance to read it. It's people now who are reading it. Right. Well, there you can learn from the historians. I mean, the, why do the historians write history? They write, they go to the past, they try to understand what the past meant, not just to the people who lived in it, but to themselves, to their, you know, to the contemporaries of the historian. Uh, you know, they bring back news from the past that might, with a little luck, inform people's lives in the present. So, uh, in that respect, uh, you know, the historical novel is a slightly different slightly more evident motive than any novel, but it's also a novel. So, um, you know, it, it, all the all the aesthetics apply. No excuse for writing a flawed historical novel. It has to be a good novel. And you use a lot of uh, really interesting techniques in this novel. I, it seems to me one of the things that I, I see in many historical novels is that beyond the history, it's a pretty straightforward deal. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a pretty much A to B to C to D to E to to Mm -hmm. Z. And the the narrative, we don't often see, I think, as much experimentation, as Mm -hmm. much moving around, as many different styles put together so seamlessly and so well as you do in this novel. Thanks. I mean, an, an editor whose name I won't mention, reading another book of mine, which is as, as has yet to be published, said, so many moving parts. <laughs> so I'm hope, hoping all these moving parts work together. At, at, when you were doing this, I mean, did you ever just say, why, why don't I just, why don't I just write, go from A to B to C to D? I mean. Well, you know, if I could, I probably would have. But I just can't work that way. So, you know, in a story, in a short story, I can do that because there is only A or B or C. But when you're working with the whole alphabet, you have to play around, at least I do in my mind, and think, well, maybe I'll go from G to A, or maybe I'll go from C to X, or Z to B. You know, there are just a lot of choices, and you have to, you have to 
make the right ones, and you have to make it seem as though there was no choice at all, that it's inevitable. When, when, we read, when I read a, a, a novel, particularly a historical novel like this, one of the things that, as a reader, I, I'm tempted to do is to spend about, you know, 15 minutes reading the book mm-hmm. and then another 15 minutes going out to Wikipedia mm-hmm. or some mm-hmm. place to see, well, wait, 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 now where is this map? What, 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 how much of this did he do? Mm-hmm. When you write, do you think about the readers doing that? No. In fact, I'm shocked. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, obviously, if you do do your research, you cover your bases. So. Um, but now I know <laughs> if I ever write another historical novel, which, alas, I might, um, I'll have to check on that and rewrite Wikipedia <laughs> to, to conform to my mistakes. And, and it's possible to do that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of our, our local writers, uh, Karen Joy Fowler, has a book where that plays a that's a big plot point. One thing that that strikes me uh, that really kind of blew me away was uh, just about this going back to to Curtis mm-hmm. was I mean, J P Morgan offered him seventy five thousand dollars in nineteen oh six. I mean that's just an enormous amount of money. Mm-hmm. That's a huge investment, mm-hmm. a- and. It just seems that that uh, that speaks to a lot of confidence in this in this guy. Could you talk about how that maybe inform and, and he and um, Curtis himself? He ended he ended up making his own movie at, at the end of his life, and he spent twenty grand on it. Mm-hmm. Again, not an inconsiderable amount even in today's dollars, mm-hmm. let alone when, when it happened. Could you talk just talk about uh, maybe how some of the finances of what went into doing this, the, un- the understructure, informed your writing. Well, you know, Morgan could afford that. Curtis couldn't afford it, but you know, he, he mortgaged everything he owned, and basically mortgaged his business. Uh, you know, he had a very he had a thriving uh, uh, portrait business, mm-hmm. and you know, he was very very well known in, in the Pacific Northwest as the person to go to to have your family portraits made. All of that money. Uh, beyond what it took just to keep the family going, went into his projects. Uh, he was also underwritten by his older brother, uh, Ray, who owned a livery business in, in Seattle. Um, so he, he gave him money for his first expedition, actually, to, to the Grand Canyon. Um, he, he had people hypnotized, I suppose, although he didn't think of it that way. You know, he was always unsure. And Morgan gave him sort of a runaround whether it was a test or not is another question. Uh, but he had Teddy Roosevelt on his side, you know, putting w- the word in Morgan's ear. So uh, that's not an inconsiderable uh, amount of weight to, to put on a project. Uh, and, and that's another aspect of, of this man's life that is interesting. How many, uh, for a man who is not a household name, really, until this book, at least, uh, uh, your words, <laughs> my words. Um, uh, he he crossed paths with a lot of people who who are. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, as as you know in the early chapters, you discover uh, a series of coincidences uh, put him uh, in in the company of some influential people in in the field of uh, uh, natural sciences. Uh, 
he and his wife stumble on a couple of lost climbers on Mount Rainier when he's invited up by the local climbing club to take uh, portraits of people uh, as they climb Rainier. And he meets uh, the, the guy, basically the guys who founded uh, the, the American uh, national wildlife uh, ethos, Pinchot and, and people like that. Uh, so they knew him because he rescued them from, in, from this uh, cave in the mountain. And they put him in touch with people like Harriman, who built the, the New York State Railroad System. And they invited him to be the photographer on a cruise they took to Alaska. And uh, they gave him uh, entry to meet Roosevelt. Um, but, you know, it, it, you don't just rise or to the level of those almost epic figures without having a considerable amount of ability yourself. So if you keep getting recommended and passed along, it's because of, not because of accident, but because of who you are, you know, something in your, in your character and the work that you do. I mean, it's his, it's his work that everyone admired uh, once they got to look at it. Could you tell us what you're working on now yourself? Well, um, I'm trying to write a couple of uh, travel essays because my publisher is bringing out a a little collection of my travel essays uh, next uh, late spring. And so there's one more essay that I want to write for that which I can write because I don't have to travel anywhere to write it. A little essay called Two Oceans about my childhood along the Atlantic and, and how I eventually was weaned from the Atlantic, pulled, drawn, magnetized by the Pacific. So that's traveling in place. I just sit still and remember what it was like to be a child near the Atlantic and, and describe what it was like to discover the Pacific. I discovered the Pacific. And boy. Like Balboa upon a peak on <laughs> Darien, as Keats put it. Uh, so that that's what I'm working on right now. Uh, you know, there's some short stories that I managed to sneak out um, while I was in, in between drafts of this novel. Um, a couple of coming out in little magazines, but uh, there, there are some stories I hope I'll try in the fall when I'm on the road. Are you currently working on anything that you started, say, five years ago? Mm-hmm. You yeah. are? Yeah, I've got another. No, I've got two novels that are in various stages of undress. <laughs> I've never heard that heard it referred to <laughs> we've been speaking with Alan Shoes his new book is called To Catch the Lightning thank you for joining me Alan my pleasure Rick thanks for your good questions You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.